We're excited that you're here with us. If this is your first time with us, thank you for coming. Make sure you stop, say hello. I really just look forward to saying hi to you and learning your story, learning what brought you here today. Remember, you can also find out more about us and what we believe, as well as sermons online, our website at eastpetemc.org. This morning, we are starting a new series. And that new series is called Essentials of Faith. This several-week journey on Sunday mornings is going to be looking at the book of Galatians, and we are going to be discovering the fundamental elements of our faith as we see Paul writing them in the book of Galatians. Galatians is a book that was really, really important to a lot of the early reformers, both of the Protestant side and the Anabaptist. I, I came across this debate this week on Galatians between Luther and the Anabaptist, and they each accused them of interpreting it wrong, and it was like a weird political debate where everyone talked over the moderator, and the, they were just talking over each other. But at the end of the day, they both agreed that Galatians was a really important book for us as followers of Jesus. It was essential for us to learn how to live in love like Jesus in a post-Christian world. Its context is one that eerily mirrors the culture in which we live in. The gist of the book teaches us that we as the church are an extended, diverse family. We, we are to care for each other and that each one of us is free and powered in authority by God. And as we live out that grace and freedom together, we find that in life we will reap what we sow. And so uh, I'm excited for this new series on Galatians. I look forward to exploring it with you. I think you're going to enjoy it. N.T. Wright looks at the book of Galatians and he says, according to Paul, Jesus' death and resurrection means that God is now building a new family, a single family, a family with no divisions, no separate races, no one table for the Jews and another for Gentiles nonsense. This is what we see happening in the story of Galatia. This morning we are going to be looking at a title, a sermon I've titled Walking in Authority from Galatians 1, 1 through 10. If you have your Bible with me, I, with you, I invite you to follow along with me. You can also follow along on the screen. You'll see it. It'll be up there. And I'm going to be reading from the screen as well. Galatians 1, 1 through 10. To set the stage and as you find your, your passage, to set the stage of what's happening in this context, kind of looking at what's happening to the people, the followers of Jesus at this time period, we see that ancient Galatia is in the area of central South Turkey, and it's at this point in the story that Roman Emperor Claudius has rose to power. Claudius is the third emperor that rises to the power of, of the Roman Empire in the Julio-Claudian dynasty, and perhaps he was one of the oddest to serve in this role. In fact, some people called him the crazy emperor. As a prince, Claudius was not a well-connected imperial prince that sowed his wild oats around the neighborhood like most princes did. In fact, he spent a lot of time in hiding because his parents were embarrassed of him. They thought he had some type of mental disability. They thought there was something wrong with him. They thought maybe the gods had cursed him. At this time, there's many gods that pagan belief is, is highly institutional to who people are. 
And he drooled. He limped. He got sick all of the time. And he couldn't speak without stuttering. He was not your emperor of great boldness that you were looking forward to. And as a prince, his parents were wondering what would become of him. We have to hide him. We're embarrassed of him. We can't let people see his weakness because in our culture, weakness is really frowned upon. Augustus, who probably is the most formative force to the Roman Empire, remarked once in a letter to the family, I think there's more to your idiot than meets the eye. Perhaps he was right because in this time period, when Claudius is brought into the throne and he is brought to the role of emperor, he ascends with a loud triumph and a time of reform in the area. In his seclusion, he had become a student of every historic piece of government up to that point. He had studied everything. And as he rises to his throne as emperor, there are rumors going everywhere that he had the previous emperor killed off. And he had the the leaders of the Senate killed off. There was all of these assassins that were happening, assassinations that were happening. And secretly, everyone knew that Claudius was somehow involved in this. So Rome at this time which oversees this small town of Galatia, is in a season of unrest. As he rises, he becomes famous for one thing, religious reform. Even in safe areas where people were allowed to worship however they wanted and, 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 and evangelize their religion however they wanted, Claudius put a stop to it. He went back and looked at his, his predecessor, Augustus, and his writings on religious associations with the state, and he decided that the state needed more power than ever, and he himself built temples and instituted new rules onto the religions that were allowed and not allowed in Rome. He fought the spreading of evangelizing of any religion, and he disbanded any safe zone. It was a culture that we may identify with pretty easily here in America, seeing our emerge from what we call the post-Christendom world. And as we continue to see our political system and our cultural system decline, it's a season of unrest, much like what we see happening in the town of Galatia. Paul writes this letter to the communities of followers of Jesus, many of which he helps start, that are throughout Galatia, These communities are followers of Jesus that have been heavily invested in by Paul. He has discipled them. He's helped them gather. He's helped vision cast for them. They were an extended family to him. He had this deep relationship with them. He cared deeply for each individual that made up their communities. These communities were made up of followers of Jesus from Jewish backgrounds, but they were also heavily made up of people that came from the Roman neighborhoods, from the neighborhoods of Galatia. They were people who had come from pagan belief, from this belief in many gods. And and they had seen the power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, and they have grafted themselves into a church. And so there's this tension building already between cultural Jews and people off the streets. In this letter, Paul hopes to address to his communities the essentials of faith. 
He hopes to talk about grace and freedom and character and commitment. But he also writes them to realign them to the gospel message that he first invested in them. He writes them because he's increasingly aware that someone needs to address the going, growing tension of the law from the Jewish insiders that was being held over the others. The insiders were opposing those from the streets. N.T. Wright uses the analogy that Paul is a construction worker and he had a blueprint from Jesus to build communities of gospel. He had these gospel community ideas and so Paul plants them and sends them out through all of Galatia. And what we see is Paul then gets called away to another mission field and as he's there, he learns that somebody has stepped in and messed up his building. He laid these great foundations and the people were to finish it. But somebody stepped in and said, no, I have a different vision. I have a different way. These foundations are so-so, but we're going to actually take the building completely to a different place. And so N.T. Wright says, Paul returns to his work in Galatia to find that somebody was building on his foundations with a completely different design and a completely wrong vision. And that is where we pick up this story that we're reading here. We find that culture is beginning to creep in on people, that these, these ideas of many gods and goddesses that are being forced on them is creeping into the church. We see that certain cultural and racial groups are dividing inside culture, just like in today's time, that people are picking these gods that align with their cultural or their racial community. And so these things are creeping into the church. We also see that in addition to the gods and goddesses, worship was poured out onto a powerful government as well. And the emperor demanded his attention. As their eyes turned with fascination to the emperor, the people of this time also began to become fascinated and in love and amazed by the power of the system, the power of Rome. It's a town, a city that is defined by its diversity, wealth, and power one that has created some fear in the minds of the communities. And that's where we're going to pick up the story as we read from Galatians. Paul, an apostle sent from men, nor by, sorry, we're going to start over. Paul, an apostle sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, before I read the next part, that is like the longest sentence in the world. I was trying to split this up, and I was like, Paul has the biggest run-on but still grammatically correct sentence right here. And it's, it is just an odd sentence. Can we not agree with that? I mean, it's, he just continues to go on in it. Paul does talk a lot, as we learn about himself. Paul continues, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have said already, or so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now I'm trying to win the approval. Now am I trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were to be trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This part of Galatians, as we start this new series, is just an introduction. This is just where Paul is beginning to just address the people in these communities. They would have gathered to probably have representatives from each of these communities listen to the reading of Paul's letter. And so he begins with this kind of strong start that is really going to get the people's attention. They are in love with the authority of the government. And so Paul comes in talking with great authority. I think there's a lot of things that we can take away from this passage. But we're going to draw just six quick points that I think are going to help us as we begin to explore the series of Galatians. But it's also going to be a time in which we learn what it means to walk in authority. So if you have your bulletin with you, you'll see there's some spots to take notes, to fill in the underscores, and you'll be able to reflect on them later. The first thing we see in this letter, in the start of this letter, we see that Paul first addresses that the authority he has as an apostle comes from Jesus and nowhere else. Now the NIV translates Paul's words literally, which make it a little hard. He just kind of starts out by Paul talking about himself in the third person. But in, in this letter, what he's saying is, I, Paul, I, I'm telling you, I am affirming my authority. And so in the first start of this letter, Paul just first addresses that he has the authority as an apostle, and it comes only from Jesus. Now, up to this point, apostles are only people that have walked with Jesus as disciples and watched Jesus crucified and resurrected. But here we see Paul call himself an apostle. So we learn later from Paul that the gift of apostle is one that is given to the church in Ephesians 4. And Paul is given the same authority as the apostles that walked with Jesus as disciples. He does point out that his authority, though it is not given by man, is recognized by man. He has stepped so far into the identity that Christ gave him on the road to Damascus that he has stepped so far into what Christ has given him as his mission that he lives it and speaks it with great authority. He knows who he is. He knows what he is called to be. And he is going to step into it with fullness. And we see that he says, and all of the other brothers and sisters are with me. He's speaking that his authority, the way he lives it out, is recognized by the other apostles. It is recognized by the other church leaders. It is respected, and it is a warning to the churches in Galatia that they, too, need to pay attention to what Paul is saying. Howard F. Valls writes this in his book, Galatians. But in the Galatian churches, agitators had challenged the author's right 
to the title of apostle his right to speak authoritatively. So that is why we see Paul starting this off with a big bang. Secondly, we see Paul then gifts them with a blessing of grace and peace that comes from his spiritual authority. Paul was a great student of writings, and one of those would have been the poetic writings that was taught from a young age, such as Psalms and Proverbs. And we see that in Proverbs, which he would have known well, the tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. After Paul introduces himself through his identity, the first thing we see him do is not rebuke. The first thing we see him do is give a blessing. Paul gives them with a a blessing of grace and peace that comes from his spiritual authority. He knows that he has the ability to curse or to bless with his words. So the first thing we see him use his authority for is not the rebuking of what people are doing wrong. He'll get to that point. But the first thing he does is he makes sure that he gives his people, these people that he cares, these churches that he's invested in, a great blessing. In his blessing, he reminds them that Jesus has made our wrongs right so that we are not residents influenced by a broken world in which we live. We see that in Galatians 1.4, where Paul writes, and this is from the God's Word translation here, in order to free us, he writes, from this present evil world, Christ took the punishment for our sins Because that was what our God and Father wanted. Up to this point, these people have been entrenched with the culture. Under Claudius' reign, there's been these things that have been forced upon the churches and on people's lives. And they have been brought up around this world. And it is more of part of their identity than whatever God is calling them to. And Paul quickly reminds them in his blessing that, no, Christ has been resurrected so that you are not influenced any longer by the broken world in which you are lived. It no longer has control. Live like me. Live with this bold confidence and authority in what God has called you to. Now we see Paul change his tone somewhat. Next we see Paul call them into accountability for the ways that they have diluted the gospel with extra Galatians, as put out by John Knox Press, writes, Under the influence of the Judeans, however, his converts were now turning to a different gospel, not that there was another gospel. Somebody had deliberately stepped in in the absence of Paul and diluted the gospel message and created doubt and apathy and sustained no growth at all. We see that passion is down. We see that the the culture is affecting it, that just like society is dividing into their groups, the groups inside the church are now dividing. And Paul is saying, there is no other gospel. 
the book continues, how brief had been their loyalty. Paul, in preaching to the Galatians, had dwelt on God's sheer grace in calling men into his kingdom, or men and women into his kingdom. Paul reminds them through his blessing of how great it is to follow Jesus. How how much has been made right, and yet here they have diluted the gospel by letting somebody speak into their midst, and at the same time they have allowed extra baggage from their culture, from their comfort, from their traditions, their Jewish traditions and their pagan traditions to creep into the church and become more of who they are than what Paul had invested in them to be. In other words, they allowed what made them happy to be more influential in their life than what Jesus had told them they were to be. Paul reminds us in this passage that when we dilute the gospel or follow away pretending to be the good news, we are actually outside of God's gospel. Paul boldly says this, right? He says, even if an angel were to tell you there is another gospel, I'm telling you let that angel be cursed because there is no other gospel than that which I've invested in you. Makes you wonder if Paul and others would show up in our churches today and just have conversations with us. What kind of letters they would write to us after, you know, you give them a visitor card. I wonder what they'd write on the, on the back of it, right? I mean, you guys have picked up a lot of baggage along the way. Um, you guys have really diluted the gospel message. Or maybe they just write identity with a question mark. Over time, we continue to walk often farther away from the gospel if we don't keep ourselves accountable. Paul is modeling accountability. Charles Erdman writes, this is the good news of salvation through Christ. It is not a gospel system of human philosophy, meaning there's no human reasoning to it. Don't try to put human reasoning to it. It is not a religion that was invented by man. It is not good advice in the form of rule of living. It is good news. It is good news. It is the announcement of a great redeeming work, the proclaiming of a great reconciling act. It is the offer of peace and life through Jesus Christ. We see Paul reminds them that he lives out his spiritual authority in his life for the sake of the gospel and God's approval alone. It's the last verse there, verse 10. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I could not be or I would not be Christ's servant. When we look to walk in the authority of God, we cannot worry about pleasing people. But when we worry about pleasing people, we are automatically given attention that is in direct contrast to God. Paul gives a big line in the sand. And he says, you're over here, or you're over here, but you cannot be both. It's important to understand what the gospel is, and the gospel isn't. Sometimes the gospel gets called the good news, that's the the language that Paul uses here. Sometimes, like in the King James, it gets translated as gospel. If I were to ask the question, what is the gospel, we'd probably not have a unified answer. It's not an answer that we talk a lot about. 
But to have authority in the gospel, we must make sure that we understand what the gospel is, right? We can't have our identity shaped by something that we are ourselves not really sure what it is or that we are wishy-washy on it. And if we have accepted something that is not the gospel in our lives as the most defining thing, then all of a sudden what we are living out is no longer the gospel either. There are three main answers that are often said when I ask somebody, what is the gospel? What are they? What is the gospel? God's word. It's the number one answer I have written down here. Anything else? The good news. Okay. What else? A message? you come from a more fundamental side, you, you will say the good news uh, often is, is labeled as the Bible. And while that is full of good news, I don't think that's the gospel that Jesus was preaching because Jesus did not institute a Bible. He did not create the Bible. The Bible comes later, but he did not say, quick, start writing this down. This is going to be a best-selling book someday. But he came preaching the gospel. So while the gospel is inside the word, it is not. Anabaptist uh, Pilgrim Marbrecht was famous for saying that the gospel was Jesus himself, that Jesus himself was the good news. Did Jesus ever proclaim that of himself? Did he ever say, I am the gospel? Or did he say, I have come declaring the gospel? Often we hear that the Bible is the good news, or Jesus is the good news, or the forgiveness of sin is good news, and why all those things are good news, and they are included in the good news, I don't think it's what we see Jesus declaring as the gospel. Jesus in Mark 4, 43 says this, the key things he is talking about, I'm sorry, that's not even uh, right, so N.T. Wright that should read says the key things he, Paul, is talking about are apostleship and gospel. That's that's the key things he's talking about in this passage. If we grasp these, and he writes, says the rest of the letter will begin to make sense. So we are entering a series on Galatians, and it's an important part to start with what is the gospel and what is apostleship so that we can move forward. Jesus himself in Mark 4, 43 says, I must preach the good news. If you have a King James... At least the 1611 version says, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom, or I must preach the good news of the kingdom in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. What do we see Jesus saying the gospel is here? The kingdom. Do you see it? Jesus doesn't say, I'm the gospel. The Bible isn't the gospel. The forgiveness of sins isn't the gospel. The kingdom is the gospel. Then he says in Mark 1, 15, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Good news referring to what is the good news? That the kingdom of God has come near. Again, Jesus says the gospel, the good news is the fact that the kingdom has come near. And the wording there used is that it's touchable. It's in our midst. It's, pre- it's pre- pressing in on us. And in Luke 17, 21, Jesus says, because the kingdom of God is in your midst, as he's explaining what is good news. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. In Mark, we see that now after John was put in prison, so, you know, John the Baptist is gung-ho for Jesus. He is preaching the same thing. 
somebody will come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And after John was put in prison, Jesus comes into Galilee, continuing to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And I put the King James up here. The NIV, I believe, says the good news of the kingdom of God. The King James calls it the gospel of the kingdom of God. And when John the Baptist begins to wonder if he did everything right, he sends some men to Jesus, right? And he says, John the Baptist wanted us to ask, are you really the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Because it's not making sense. At this very time, Jesus had cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. And so he replied to the messengers, go back to John and tell them what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news of those things, of the kingdom, are being preached to the poor. Blessed is anyone, Jesus says, who does not stumble on account of me. The good news, Jesus proclaims, is that God has given the power of God, of the Holy Spirit, of the kingdom to us, in the midst of us, for us, around us. It empowers us to do what Jesus did. The good news is that God has made a way for us to be reconciled with him, and not only does that, but does so by empowering us to do the same thing that Jesus did. The gospel is that God is in reach, that the kingdom of God is in reach it is not something marginally in our future. It is something we discover now. N.T. Wright writes in Surprised by Hope, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from the earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That is, after all, what the Lord's Prayer is all about. That is what the gospel is. One last quote, George E. Ladd, who writes in a book called The Gospel of the Kingdom, a highly recommended book if you want to look further at studies on the gospel. George E. Ladd, The Gospel of the Kingdom. He writes, The mission of Jesus brought not a new teaching, but a new event. It brought people to an actual foretaste of the eschatological salvation. Jesus did not promise the forgiveness of sins. He bestowed it. Authority, do you hear it? Jesus did not promise the forgiveness of sins. He bestowed it. He did not simply assure people of the future fellowship of a kingdom. He invited them into fellowship with himself as the bearer of that kingdom. I'm not here to tell you about what's going to happen. I'm telling you, you get to play in the kingdom now. He did not merely promise them vindication in the day of judgment. He bestowed upon them the status of a present righteousness. He not only taught an eschatological deliverance from physical evil, he went about demonstrating the redeeming power of the kingdom, delivering people from sickness and even death. The gospel of the kingdom is that we are given authority in it, that we are given authority by God to walk out what it is that he has called us to and to live that to other people. It is not what is yet to come. It is what we can do now. N.T. Wright and Paul for Everyone writes, 
Isn't it time for the church to rediscover an apostolic gospel and live by it? Isn't it a time for us to walk in such authority and be powered with such authority as we see with Paul that we know who we are and nothing is going to stand in our way? There's five pressing questions that I think, in closing, we have to ask ourselves. Do you have authority in your life, and where do you get it from? What do you have authority in? When you stand in somebody who oppresses you, do you have a confident authority that that person cannot violate you? Because you have authority, and where does it come from? The second question is, if there is a power in our words, are you quicker to first bless or curse those you see in the wrong? If there's power in our words, are you quicker to bless or curse those you see in the wrong? Are you more influenced by your identity in Jesus or the tactics of the broken world around us? That's a powerful question in today's political realm, right? What baggage have you added to the gospel, or what false gospel have you followed? Lastly, do you walk in your authority and believe regardless of the consequences? God doesn't want us to lord our authority over us, but he does not want us to be timid. I would include that as we, as we conclude here, that it would be good for you this week to reflect on what it is that God has given you vision for, to write it down, make, a, make a, a list of tools that God has given you in your life. Maybe you're creative, maybe you're really good at problem solving. And give these things before the Lord, the vision he's given you, and the giftings of which you've been able to pull in your life and say, these are the things you have made me an authority. Now where do you wish me to walk it out? And how may I do so rightly? It's going to be an exciting series with Galatians. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I have been.